One of the most important things to know about imposter syndrome is that everybody feels it. And I truly mean everyone. If you scale up to billionaires, there will be billionaires that feel out of place in certain rooms. There's nothing about what you're feeling, which is weird or off or different. The difference is whether or not you take action. Action is always the difference. When you have product market fit, you know. Like you can't keep up with demand. Not a lot of people experience that level of product market fit. Usually what you should do is you should test the market to see if there's any demand. And what people do, they usually think of this product and they and they love it so much and they love it themselves and they take it to the market and no one else cares. A way to find out if this product market fit before spending a lot of money is. What is up, young and profiters? You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, where we interview the brightest minds in the world and unpack their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. I'm your host, Halataha. Thanks for tuning in and get ready to listen, learn, and profit. Scott, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. Thank you for having me on, Hala. I appreciate it. I am super psyched. I love having my friends on the show. So today we're joined by my friend and podcasting peer, Scott Clary. He's an entrepreneur, keynote speaker, investor, and podcast host. He's the host of the very popular entrepreneurship and business podcast, Success Story. He's also the CEO of OmniPatch, which is a transdermal vitamin patch that delivers naturally derived science-backed ingredients to support you through life's ups and downs. Scott is well known for sales and marketing, and he speaks globally at industry conferences. He's been featured in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Startup, amongst other publications. And in today's episode, we're going to unpack Scott's career story and cover topics like side hustling, how to grow a monetizable podcast, and lastly, we'll go deep on sales strategies. So Scott, you were born in Canada. You're the son of an ex-policeman turned intelligence officer and a university lab manager. And you really weren't exposed to the world of entrepreneurship growing up. And you were expected to go into some sort of law enforcement field like most of your family. So where did the desire to work for yourself come from? And how did you step into the land of entrepreneurship? It was such a gradual process. And everything, nothing, in hindsight, it all makes sense. But nothing makes sense when you're actually doing it. And it's funny because... I was supposed to be going into some sort of law enforcement. I mean, dad was law enforcement, grandpa, uncle, everyone was law enforcement. And then they migrated to different, my dad was CSIS, so Canadian CIA for, back, for lack of a better reference. And I wanted something safe and secure. And that's kind of what I knew. That's what my parents knew and nothing wrong with that. So I actually went into a really large tech company, a telco company in Canada. And then from that company, then I went into a smaller tech company because I had, I've done, I did very well at that. I was really good. I kept moving up market. I was, I killed it in SMB, then mid-market, then enterprise sales, moved to a smaller tech company, did very well there. And through that tech company, there was an exit. And then I understood, like, this is like fast forwarding, like 10 plus years of my life. But when I joined a company, saw the founder of that company, sell his company to private equity, that's when I realized that I could have a piece of the pie and I could be at the cap table or, or have a seat at the table. I didn't, know what, I didn't know what a cap table was back then, but I could have a piece of a company. I could take part in that transaction because I saw people that were part of that company taking part in that transaction. So wheels started turning and then I'm like, okay, so if I want to have this big payout because I'm no longer working in you know, a big, even tech company, I'm not working in government, 
not working in big tech. I don't have a pension. I don't have security. I have to have X million dollars in the bank when I retire because nobody's going to be paying me till I die. So that was like my benchmark for security. If I'm not going to have a pension, which pensions for a lot of people listening don't really exist the way they used to. Pensions to sort of show what a pension could be like, I'll give you my dad's. He's making 70%, I think of his five best years of salary till the day he dies. Wow. And I think if I'm not mistaken, he has two pensions because he worked for two different government organizations. So he actually has two pensions compounded till the day he dies, the second he retires which is wild. So that means like guaranteed 100K plus for a lot of people that does not exist. So when you stop working outside of the investments that you make, or maybe the contribution that the company makes, you have nothing in your bank. So I was like, how do I make a lot of money? (laughs) And it was like, (laughs) startups are where you make a lot of money. Now, obviously super naive, most startups fail. This is not like a great strategy for a lot of people and I wouldn't ever recommend it. But again, hindsight's 2020. So I started working in the world of startups. I did consulting, trading my, literally my time for small pieces of equity in funny enough startups that hadn't raised money yet and didn't have any money to pay me. So it wasn't a really a great strategy. And I realized that as opposed to, instead of doing like fractional CXO work, so fractional executive work with a whole bunch of underfunded startups that didn't have product market fit, I should double down on my skills on one company. And I did, and I was CRO there and we went through an exit event that was good. It wasn't like I'm gonna retire money, but it was good money. And that's sort of what was my journey through safety and comfort and security and government to big tech, to small tech, to startup, to where I'm at today. I love that. And Scott, as I was learning about your story, you took a lot of risks and chances and asked for what you wanted to get to where you are. You didn't just like stand still and do the same thing over and over. So like you said, you started off in big telco, I think it was Bell Canada. Then you moved to a smaller telco company because you wanted to level up in your career. You thought that there'd be faster growth there. And actually, you got your first sales leadership role at that company. It was a director role that opened up and you just pitched yourself for it. You were totally unqualified, which I love. And you, you just went for it. So tell us that story. I think it really showcases your grit. So the director that hired me at that smaller telco, he took a job at Salesforce almost immediately after you hired me. So there was a big opening in that company for a sales leader. And I had no qualification. I'd never managed a sales team. I'd closed large deals as an individual contributor. I never managed a sales team before. So I put together a presentation and I said, these are the reasons why I'm fit for this job. There was people that have been in this company, by the way, for years. So like I had no business doing this at all, but I don't really know why I took that initiative. It's definitely a common thread throughout my life that I've always sort of just gone for things, put together a presentation, pitched it to the director that was exiting and the CEO and got, got the position. It was really just putting together a plan of where I see us now, lessons that I've learned in my career that I can incorporate into this, into this organization, a one, three, five, 10-year plan for where I want to take the sales team, scaling out the outside team, scaling out the inside team. And I really put together like a really, really in-depth proposal as to why I should have that job. And that initiative was enough to actually get that job because they, again, like hiring is expensive. So you can go outside, you can look for other people, but nobody else internally was looking to, to really take it. And I was the one who had good experience, didn't have manager, but had good experience that was actually you know, saying like, listen, I'm throwing my hat into the ring. I'm the man in the arena. I really want this. And it was just a great learning opportunity because it showed that not always, but when you ask for things and you put effort and showing that you want it, sometimes things do work out. Sometimes things really do work out. And if you adopt that attitude in literally everything, I mean, you'll hear the sayings like, if you don't ask, you won't get. Mm-hmm. It is very true. 
So I think a lot of people, if they took a little bit more risk, not significant, not quitting their job tomorrow and building something from scratch, and that's a whole other conversation. We can talk about side hustles and everything. But if they just took more risk in, I want to, in my job, I want to push myself and I want to push my manager to allow me to accelerate in my career. And you do the work that's required before it's required. You put together some sort of reasoning as to why you should be in that role and you constantly fight for it. I would be very surprised if over a period of time, people did not get what they're looking to get. Totally. It just goes to show you, like, you've got to shoot your shot. I feel like I'm very similar. I always shoot my shot. Even if I feel like there's really little chance, half the time I get what I want, what I ask for, what I didn't actually deserve just because I put my hat in the ring, like you mentioned. Ask for what you want, yeah. Just shoot your shot. So let's talk about imposter syndrome for a minute. I know you interview a ton of people. I'm sure you've talked about imposter syndrome on your podcast. And a lot of women especially have a problem with imposter syndrome and women in particular, but basically they would never put their hat in a ring if they feel underqualified because they just have such significant imposter syndrome. So what would you say to somebody who feels like they're just never good enough, that they're not smart enough? How do you think they can overcome imposter syndrome? So one of the most important things to know about imposter syndrome is that everybody feels it at whatever stage they're at. And I truly mean everyone. So if you scale up to billionaires, there will be billionaires that feel out of place in certain rooms. And it sounds crazy to us and somebody who's making 60K a year, but it's very true. So everybody feels uncomfortable in certain situations like they don't belong. And this is why, you know, when you see even at a very high level, billionaires and they bring kings and queens and monarchs to dinners because they feel like they don't fit into European high society or, or so on and so forth. Or you have uh, very rich people whining and dining princes and, and whatnot in Saudi and, and the Emirates and looking to get their money and bring it back to the US. There's always times when people will not feel like they fit in a room and that scales up and it never ends. So know that first. That's very important. There's nothing about what you're feeling, which is weird or off or different. The difference is whether or not you take action. Action is always the difference. So when you look at something that you feel you're not qualified to do, and I don't know the psychological reason why this plagues women more than men, but I do know that men, like literally the case study that you just outlined, are more likely to take the step and to do the thing even if they're underqualified than women. I don't know why that is, and that's something that we have to solve for, but that actually allows men to get the thing. Like if you look at studies, like if people are applying for a job and a man has six of 10 requirements, he'll still apply where a woman will not apply unless she has nine of 10 or 10 of 10. And I don't have data points to back that up, but I'm sure it's very easy to find these types of studies. So I think that you have to know that everybody feels it. You have to take action. And then to sort of like reduce the stress, something that I've found is reverse engineering the path to get to where I want to be. So I've taken this sort of strategy of reverse engineering in quite literally everything I do, in my health goals, in my mental health, physical health, focus goals, it could be my business goals, my investment goals, it could be where I want to take my company, it could be who I'd like to bring on my podcast, similar to you. I look at who's done it before, and I literally reverse engineer every single step, because everybody has a path, and success leaves clues, and they're usually quite loud, and if you actually do enough research on the item that you're trying to achieve, you can probably quite reasonably come to a level of certainty as to what you actually have to do to get there. And you'll two things will happen when you do that. You'll understand the path you have to take and the steps you have to take to get there and anything in life. But you'll also realize that you're actually not as far as you actually are. 
as you think you are before you reverse engineer that. And that starts to mitigate some of the stress of imposter syndrome, which then allows action. That is incredible advice. I learned something from Safi Bacall years ago that I always remembered. And he says, imposter syndrome is really a language issue. You don't understand the key terms that people are using in a room or the, brief, the acronyms that people are using. And a lot of the times it's a matter of, like, let's say you feel like an imposter in a, a new industry or a new company. A lot of the times it means you don't understand what everybody is saying. And that's why you feel like you're an imposter. You don't belong here. When it's just really like maybe 10 words you need to learn to really understand what's going on. I've never heard that definition, but that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. The level that you have to reach to get to the thing that you want is really not as far as you think it is. Totally. Okay. So let's talk about sales a little bit in terms of your early career with sales. So you actually started working at a telco company throughout college, like right after high school. Is that right? So you've had like 20 years of sales experience or so, right? Enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not quite. That. I don't know how old you are yet, but, but like a lot of sales experience because most people start after college. You started throughout college. So you were naturally good at sales. What do you think about you made you naturally good at sales? Oh, that's a tough one. It's a loaded question. So I think that what allowed me to be good at sales was Again, this is me understanding in hindsight. So I want people to make sure that they know that if they're in sales right now, this is not something that I jumped into sales and I was like, oh shit, yeah, I'm gonna kill it. When I got into sales, I knew that it made a lot of money and it was like that or bartending. And those were the jobs that made the most money. You have to get commission or you have to, you have to bartend. And I'm like, okay, so like thinking strategically, it makes more sense for me to go into sales. I was always very technical as a kid and I doubled down on loving the product that I was selling. So I just loved the product. I love the nuance of the product. I knew the product inside and out. And it did help that I worked for a company that had a great product and had a great brand. But I think that actually loving the product and loving what you're actually selling and being able to evangelize that to a customer is a major differentiator than somebody is really apathetic. So if you don't believe in what you're selling, I found this to be a common thread through everything I've ever sold to anybody, including selling a company to an investor, which is a sale or selling a company to a hire, which is also a sale. When you're selling something, if you don't believe in what you're selling, you will not be able to sell it 11 out of 10 times. And other things help like, yeah, maybe a little bit charismatic, but ultimately loving the product, communicating that people feel it and they feel the authenticity and they feel that you're truly believing what you're saying and you're not full of shit, that will close more deals than anything. I love that. So I learned that you actually started consulting on the side at some point during your career. And you started your podcast as a side hustle. So I'd love to get your input on side hustles. So you started out doing consulting on the side. What made you realize that you wanted to start a side hustle or that you were, there was a market out there for you to have a side hustle? Yeah. So when I started consulting, it was actually during the second, the company where I actually got that first sales leadership role. That's when I started doing a little bit of consulting. And I wanted to consult and start a side hustle. And side hustles were not as popular then. And they weren't like a thing, which caused a little bit of friction with the job, but it ended up working out for the better in the, in the long run. But I wanted to start it because I was very entrepreneurial. And I thought that entrepreneurship meant you had to build something from scratch. And I think that's what a lot of people feel. They're like, I got to build something and I got to find a way. Entrepreneurship is sexy. And I look at, you know, the whatever, the Zuckerbergs and, and whatever other entrepreneur you love. And you're like, I want to be like that. And then I'm not a technical person. I'm not a developer. I'm not an engineer. So I'm like, what can I actually sell to the market? And it was a skills that I had accumulated over my years of sales and then years of marketing. So I think that was 
what I thought entrepreneurship should be. And it was founding a company. And this was the only product that I knew how to sell, which was myself. And the reason why I started as a side hustle was, again, it was imposter syndrome. I didn't actually feel like I committed to trusting and, and betting on myself at that point, which actually, funny enough, it turned into a side hustle. I started it with two other partners. We killed that company after a while because it was very stressful and we weren't really great at consulting. We didn't have experience doing it. And it was our first foray into this. We all came from companies to try and consult. But actually, the way that I approached it, I think I would recommend to everyone. So even though I didn't do it for the right reasons, because I was very shy and nervous about starting something, I would recommend that if somebody wants to start something, they actually do it as a, as a side hustle, but for the right reasons. So have confidence in yourself, have faith in what you're building, but start it as a side hustle. And I'm, I'm a strong advocate for not quitting your job immediately. I'm not about the quit your job, have six months or 12 months of runway and go all in. I'm about you work your job, you give your hours to the person who's paying you, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. But with the amount of time that you have in a week, plus the amount of tools that we have access to now, there is zero excuse to not be able to scale something, to start something, to find some semblance of product market fit to even, we can talk about buying companies, buy a company and test and see if you're good at that for very low prices for smaller companies without having any technical background, finding a technical co-founder, but start something, find product market fit, find your first 50, 100, 150 customers, wait until you make the same salary or even double the salary that you're making at your job, very similar to your story. I remember your story. And then you leave. And that's when you can take your side hustle and go full-time. And you can build a company. Like, let's think of a, a salary, say 100K. You can totally build a side hustle to 200K on part-time. Like that, let's be real. Like it's very doable, right? And now you're talking about, we have AI. Shit, I didn't have AI. I couldn't copyright. I couldn't write all this shit with AI. I couldn't create graphs with AI for my social for a side hustle brand. Now the tools that we have are like incredible in terms of the efficiency that we can be as human beings when creating stuff. So. I would say start it as start it as a part-time thing. Find ways to leverage your time, leverage resources, leverage. You can leverage Upwork for talent in different geographies. It's relatively cheap to help you scale out. You can leverage a whole bunch of different things, but then you're not risking it all. You're not cutting off your main source of income. And when you're not stressed financially, you make much smarter decisions. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. What's up, Yap Bam? Being an entrepreneur and working remotely definitely has its perks. And I know a lot of you listening in are in the same boat as me. But do you really take advantage of being able to work from anywhere? I know I typically don't, but thankfully this past holiday, I finally decided to make use of my work flexibility for the first time ever. My boyfriend and I decided to pack up and leave to the West Coast to spend an entire month working from home in the sun. We got a super cute bungalow in Venice Beach with a fenced backyard. The change in scenery, the fresh air, and the slower pace to help me to inspire some really cool new ideas for my business. And honestly, I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to rock in 2024. And who helped me make these remote work dreams come true? It was Airbnb. And Airbnb has come in clutch for me time and time again. Whether it's finding the perfect Airbnb home for our three-day annual executive team get-together or booking a vacation where my extended family can fit all in one place, Airbnb always makes it a great experience. And you know me, I'm always thinking of my latest business venture and I've been begging my boyfriend to start hosting our place on Airbnb. And finally, we're gonna start. So many of my successful friends host on Airbnb and it's such an amazing way to generate passive income. So to start, we have a plan to start spending more time in Miami and we'll be hosting our place to earn some extra money when we're back on the East Coast. 
2024 goals and I'll keep you updated. A lot of people don't realize that they might have an Airbnb right under their own noses. I was pretty surprised myself. You can Airbnb your place or spare room even if you're out of town for just a few days or weeks. You could do what I did and work remotely somewhere else and Airbnb your place to fund your trip. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host to find out how much your home is worth. Young and profiters, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. With inspiration at our fingertips and powerful tools at our disposal, the possibilities are endless. And when it comes to tools that can truly make your business grow, there's one name that always stands out, Shopify. <coughs> Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the real store with the door stage, and even the did we just hit a million orders stage. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI superpowered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Not to mention Shopify also is the home of the best converting checkouts in the game, 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. Shopify turns browsers into buyers. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And you can sell whatever, whenever with Shopify. Push pleated pants with Shopify's in-person POS system or monetize mindful meditation. I sell my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass through Shopify and they've made my life a breeze. It took a couple days to set up my store and I just get to focus on what I do best, creating great content and marketing my product. So don't stress if you're new to this commerce thing. Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. And remember, whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting, and that's all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash profiting to start growing your business today. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. This is like incredible advice. And I agree with all of it. I always say if you're going to start a new business, do it as a side hustle. And like you said, we're in 2023 now. Everybody, first of all, is working from home. So talk about all the time we save with no commute now. For me, that was the big game changer. As soon as I had no commute, I started Yap Media. We blew up, but I did it as a side hustle. Also cut out TV and unproductive time. We're all wasting our time, mindless TV, social media. Those are hours that you can work towards your dream. One thing that I want to touch on, and then I want to keep talking about side hustles, you mentioned that you thought there was only one way to be an entrepreneur. And I feel like there's more behind that. So what did you mean by that? Because at the time, I only trusted myself. So I didn't want to find a, a co-founder that was a technical co-founder because I didn't know how to read code. I didn't know how to, and now, now I know how to buy a business. You can buy cheap businesses on microacquire or biz buy sell or flippa, and you can scale those up. Meaning that the core bones and the, the cornerstone and the foundation of the business has already been built. You buy it and then you can scale it up. So I think that entrepreneurship can have a variety of different meanings. I think that the version of entrepreneurship that I knew of was just commoditizing and productizing the skill set that I'd done my entire career, which is by the way, not a bad thing, but it's just, that was the only version that I knew. And the reason there was an issue with that, the reason there was an issue with consulting is because when you consult, you really trade your time for hours invested in the company, right? It's not an efficient form of entrepreneurship to conduct as a side hustle. It's not a leverageable form of entrepreneurship. There's even different ways to consult that could be better. Like retainers are a great way. Even outsourcing work. If the work is a quality, you can outsource work. 
But my version of entrepreneurship was trusting myself. So it was like, I'm a consultant. I can help you with your marketing campaign, your sales campaign. I can build out processes. I can train your sales reps, whatever. And I'm going to do that myself. So we made a lot of errors. That's why I meant we didn't know how to consult. We didn't know how to do it right. So we were like working our, well, actually, when I started, I was working a 40-hour week in an office plus X amount of hours on the weekend and at night, finding clients, doing work, closing deals. And then when I went full-time consulting, it was like 40 hours and we were actually consulting in a client's office. You can't mess around when you're in a client's office. Your perceived value goes way down when you just become part of their workforce. But they were paying us on a big monthly retainer. They wanted us in office. So like eight hours a day, I can't be working on other stuff for the consulting company. I can't be posting on social. I can't be having calls with new potential clients. I'm on retainer. I'm in their physical office. So there's better ways to consult. That was just my version. Not a great version. Sucked. Don't do it. If you're going to consult, you're going to be an agency, whatever it is. Follow what Hala's doing. She's killing it. <laughs> She's not like growing that many gray hairs. <laughs> so the point is, it doesn't matter if you screw up your first version of entrepreneurship. There's lots of other versions you can try and maybe like think outside the box when it comes to what you want to take to the market and how to do it in a scalable way. Fun fact, I've never had a gray hair. I'm truly young and profiting. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Damn straight. Let's go. <laughs> In terms of side hustles and thinking about a lot of people are like, I don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. I get this question a lot because like you, I'm known for like building side hustles and that's how I came up. And people are always like, well, I don't know what side hustle to start. And my favorite answer is the one that you gave. Start off with your skills and talents. What you get paid for in your day job, you can then do as a service. But a lot of people feel like they don't have monetizable skills, which is a huge problem. But what would you say is a great way to decide what to do as your side hustle? What was your, your thinking process around that? First of all, I think everyone has monetizable skills. Straight up, everyone has monetizable skills. Any business unit you work in, you can productize that. And if you are the evangelist and CEO and founder of a brand that does that thing, that means that you can create trust with your clients because you've done that thing for X amount of years but it also means that you should find ways to scale yourself. So that means you should hire talent underneath you that can fulfill some of the work that is up to par with your standard and your quality. So I think that everybody, like, I mean, you're a CFO, you're, a, you're an accountant, you have a monetizable skill. You're a marketer in, as a generalist or as somebody who's more specific in social media or SEO, I mean, you have a monetizable skill. I think it's just how you take it to market and how you, and how you commoditize that skill. So meaning that, you use tools like Upwork and Fiverr and TopTal to find great deal flow without busting your ass for new clients. You nurture those relationships and eventually they morph into something bigger, right? And again, I sort of alluded to it before, like you can do the work yourself day one, but after a while you're building a, a side hustle should turn into a business, not just a job. So you leverage, leverage as much as you can. So you leverage other people's time, you leverage, I'll give you a, a very clear example. I have a copywriter that works for me, he's a Canadian, and he took the initiative to go overseas to the Philippines. And the Philippines is a great place for talent. Incredible talent in the Philippines. Very smart, very educated. Like I've had better people from the Philippines than I found in North America sometimes. Same. So <laughs> they kill it. And he went after university and he went to the Philippines because he cared. He was a copywriter. He cared so much about his quality of work that he knew that if he just maybe hired online, maybe it wouldn't be as good. So he went to the Philippines and he interviewed people face-to-face -face, and he built relationships with great writers in the Philippines. So obviously there's a little bit of an arbitrage of, of cost there. He saves a little bit of money, 
and then he can still deliver high quality work to a North American market and he can charge North American prices and he can pay great Philippine wages as well. So, I mean, he set up a great copywriting business for himself, leveraging tools that he has access to and making sure that even though he's the point man for the company, he's the CEO and the founder of the copywriting company, nobody expects him to be writing every single blog post. That's not how these companies work. And he doesn't pretend that that's how he's creating this company. So he built this more or less in like his spare time, to be quite honest. And he built systems and processes that allow a team in the Philippines to fulfill client work without him overseeing everything. He has checks and balances on every single piece that's written. So there's like a rigorous, a rigorous quality test that has to pass. And there's multiple writers and they actually share work between each other and they sort of like critique each other's work. So the end, the output is exceptional. It's a relatively cheap, low cost business considering um, they are outsourced talent. And he's built this as a side hustle and he could turn it into a full-time thing. And by the way, just so you know, like this is like sort of what I did with Yap. Most of my talent was in the Philippines and then it was like labor cost arbitrage with my personal brand being able to charge super high and all my training that I gave my team, right? And then it started being more of a, a global company. So really interesting. Let's talk about product market fit. So as you know, I launched a new LinkedIn masterclass and I teach content strategies and sales strategies. And some people are crushing with what I taught, but I'm finding that a lot of people who don't have product market fit, my stuff doesn't work for them because if you don't have a product that the market wants, no matter what I teach you for sales, it's not gonna work. And so I feel really bad for these people because they're so stuck on their idea, but they have no product market fit. And like I said, unless they change their offer, there's not much that I can do for them. So how can you tell if something has product market fit or doesn't? And what's your advice in terms of ensuring that if you start something, you do it with product market fit? The easiest answer I can give you is when you have product market fit, you know. And I know that's like the most ambiguous answer, but, and I'll, I'll, I'll go into details, but the point is when you have product market fit, like you can't keep up with demand. That is true product market fit. And we're not just talking okay product market fit, like, like exceptional product market fit means you can't keep up with orders. You have trouble with fulfilling. So things are selling out all the time. Your servers are like over bandwidth. You're having to spin up new AWS instances all the time. You have like so much money coming into the bank account that it is like blowing your mind. Like it is insane. Like true product market fit, founder of Byte, I had her on. She launched a product and I think she, CNBC featured a, a TikTok clip. I'm gonna get my numbers wrong because I did not prep for this. But anyway, I'll give you the context of the story and it'll sort of like paint a picture of what product market fit could be. Founder of Byte, which is like um, a sustainable company that gives you like tooth care, like oral care and, and tooth products and whatnot. She put out a viral TikTok clip and that TikTok clip got, got picked up by CNBC, like went viral, like to the tunes of millions of people watching it. And she went from zero orders to like 500K in orders in like 24 hours or something wild like that. Oh my God. And she could not fulfill. Like she had to like reach out to all these people saying like, stick with me. It's going to be like three months till I can fulfill because I, I'm operating out of my garage or, you know, my living room, whatever. So that is when you find product market fit. You cannot keep up, which is a great problem to have. Not a lot of people experience that level of product market fit. Usually what you should do is you should test the market to see if there's any demand. And what people do is they usually think of this product and they, and they love it so much and they love it themselves and they take it to the market and no one else cares. That's a big problem with a lot of entrepreneurs. So how do you guarantee that there's product market fit? Well, the most likely chance of having product market fit for an entrepreneur is the entrepreneur that actually has the highest success rate 
is somebody that's actually worked in an industry for a long period of time. They identify a problem in that industry, and then they launch a product or a piece of tech or a solution against the problem they've witnessed for the past 20 plus years. That is usually who has the highest success rate. It's not the Stanford grad who's building some new innovative tech. So that is a good way to launch a product. Other ways that people have successfully launched products, they take something that's working in one country and they transplant it and launch it into another country. These are simple ideas, but it, it does work. A way to find out if this product market fit before spending a lot of money, you could do what Buffer did. So Buffer is like the, you know, the social media posting tool, obviously a tech platform, and it would have cost a significant amount to make an MVP. Their MVP was a landing page with a form asking people if there was any need for this product and how much they'd pay for it. And that was it. There was no actual product built. And they ran ads against that form. So they ran ads to that landing page and then people signed up and I, they got several thousand people saying, yes, we want that. Yes, this is how much I actually would pay for this product on a monthly basis. Now you found out that there's 5,000 people that would pay for your product at 20 bucks a month. There's a good semblance of product market fit. You've at least tested the market. If you spend 500 bucks on ads and you won't even get 500 people or even 100 people signing up on a form saying they'd use your product, you don't have product market fit. So you should test your messaging, test the audience that you're targeting, test the pain point that you're trying to solve for until you can at least prove it out with just ad spend and a form. And that's a great first step. If, people, if more people did that, then you'd have less unsuccessful entrepreneurs. And you can also test it against marketplaces that already exist. The point is like Upwork, if you're a service-based business, Upwork, TopTile, Fiverr, whatever, you can put yourself out there, see if people start to buy your product, see if you're differentiated enough. So what you don't wanna do is you don't wanna spend a lot of money in taking a product to market before you test some level of product market fit. And this is a, I mean, there's more complex ways of testing if you have resources, but without resources, it's a great way to test. Yeah. I really hope you guys take heed to Scott's advice. This was like excellent advice. And this is the number one mistake that I see people do. They think there's some problem that doesn't really exist and they're investing in products. And I have a friend who's like starting a clothing line and she and she's like investing all this money. And I'm like, do you have product market fit? Like, have you tested it? Yeah. But, you know, everybody needs to learn on their own. Right. So let's talk about your podcast, Scott. You've got a very successful podcast success story. You were considered a competitor. Me and you are head to head in the no podcast categories. I know we collab over a competition. All abundance. Exactly. <laughs> but technically we are like, you know, we're very similar in terms of our numbers and who we interview and all that kind of stuff. So I really respect you as a podcaster. There's only 250 of us that are really monetizing. And is that true? Uh, yeah, there's only 250 podcasts that are like monetizing at our level, like able to go through all these agencies that we work through. That's why I see all the same ads on every podcast. Yeah, there's not that many of us who figured it out and you really have. So let's start here. What was the genesis of your podcast? How long ago did you start it? And why did you decide to start it? So I started it just over four years now. So about four and a half years. Oh my God, we started at the same time. Yeah, I think we started at the same time. I started it because after the first side hustle failed. I wanted to build a something. I wanted to build, I had no idea what I wanted to build. I'm like, I want to build something. I didn't know what I wanted to build. I'm like, listen, I have to like scratch my entrepreneurial itch and I have to build something that's going to be with me for a period of time. And it's going to pay off dividends in the future, but I'm not starting another product because I was CRO at a tech company, at a SaaS company. That's the one that was actually acquired more recently. I didn't want to build something on the side, but I knew that if I built a personal brand, because I'm looking at the Gary V's of the world, I could leverage that for whatever I wanted in the future. So if I had eyeballs looking at me, um, I could launch products against that. I could launch against that audience in that community. I could monetize that community in the future. 
all the things that literally, like quite literally, like Gary Vee speaks about why you should build a personal brand. I was a student of that. And I was like, okay, so how do I, how do I build a personal brand around business content? And, you know, you think about all the different mediums. And before we went live, I was talking about how I started on LinkedIn and I was creating a whole bunch of some good, some like a little bit tacky business content, but it really resonated, built a good audience. But a lot of people were doing it and I wanted to differentiate and I wanted to expand across different platforms because I knew that eventually, not day one, but eventually you do have to go against different platforms. I'm a big proponent of start with what works for you, but after a while, you know, you're going to expand it. How do you expand content? Well, you don't want to always have to create original for every single platform. Sometimes it works, but ultimately you want a more scalable content strategy that can act as like your pillar content, right? And video, audio, podcasting made the most sense for the type of content I wanted to put out. I was a no-name. Nobody knew me. Nobody gave a shit about my opinion, but I did have a good network. And I knew that if I could bring other people's opinions on, they would start to care about me eventually. And I'd also get to have good conversation with great people and it's a a networking play too. So that was the inception. And it was like, I need a pillar piece of content that I can continuously make and predictably use to uh, disseminate across all my social again and again and again and again. And I want to do that forever. And I want to build a brand around that. And then I want to get a 10 million eyeballs, 20 million, 100 million eyeballs looking at me. And then I can launch products. I can, I can do like what Gary is doing and, you know, launch VaynerMedia and Vayner Sports and Empathy Wines and all the other stuff that he does, like lit, uh, uh, V Friends and all the, like all the random stuff, just because you have the audience there. And to have that platform is huge. That was sort of the, the thought process. And this podcasting made the most sense because it created content. And as long as the interview that we're having is good, all the derivatives of that interview are also going to be good. And everywhere they're going to go, they're going to provide value. And they're not going to be perfectly optimized for every platform, but they're going to be like 80 to 90% of the way there. And it's a scalable strategy. Yeah. Having a personal brand is such a power move in today's age. It just really, really moves the needle. What I'm curious about with your journey because it sounds like you did, you started podcasts on LinkedIn around the same time. You're also huge on Instagram and YouTube. So which one sort of blew up first? And then did you leverage any of those platforms to then grow the other ones? Yeah. So LinkedIn blew up first. Same. LinkedIn was always first. YouTube and Instagram were somewhat simultaneous because I was very heavy on video from day one. So I was putting out almost for like, since I started, between three to six pieces of video content per day in various forms. It's just been like an onslaught of video content, which fortunately has played into recent algorithms because I, part of my podcast process is you do the long form content and then I break it down into every single question that I ask is a separate video clip. And every single question that I ask is uploaded on a separate playlist outside of my full podcast on YouTube which is before YouTube had their own SEO for videos. Every single title was SEO'd. So every single smaller clip was also getting ranked on Google. And then I would also take all the smaller clips and then break them into like the 30 to 60 second sound bites. And then I'd use that for TikTok and Instagram and and even Snapchat Spotlight and, and YouTube Shorts. So I was always video heavy. And the reason why I was so bullish on video, it sort of ties to a thesis that I have around YouTube as a whole. Like, I mean, I'm very bullish on video. I believe that there's a lot of psychological reasons why YouTubers that have large audiences on YouTube have large audiences everywhere. But if you'll notice like a big Instagram influencer, it's, it's siloed on Instagram or a big TikTok or a big Twitter, it's all siloed. YouTube, I think it's a combination of video plus trust plus the length of time that somebody consumes your content. The rapport is just insane that you build with the audience. And I've always like, if I build a big YouTube audience, I'm going to be big everywhere else. 
it so far the thesis has actually worked out. I think it's a trust factor. I think the audience trust score, whatever that is on YouTube, is the highest of any social. Yeah. It's really interesting because I'm always of the school of thought that you start on one platform, you dominate it. I started like LinkedIn podcast first, I dominated that. And then I moved on to Instagram and YouTube. But you're, you're somebody who seems to like have kind of blown up on all channels pretty simultaneously. I think it has to do with maybe your that content approach that you were just talking about, how you have a pillar form content, then you sort of distribute it out. Did you kind of focus somewhere first or was it really just all like omni-channel? It was omni-channel. Like I was, okay, so candidly, my strategy is nuts. Like I put a lot of time into this. So I don't recommend this as like a very doable strategy. I would actually recommend that you kill one channel first and you leverage that. Literally exactly what you're saying. Like day one, I would do, because I didn't have a team, it wasn't monetized. So I was cutting every single video myself and I was, I, I would download every piece of tech and every app that I could ever use to find ways to take all those long form clips and turn them into like every podcast is probably like 50 to 60 different pieces of content. And I was doing that myself and I was posting myself and I was scheduling myself and I was using any type of automation tool, like a, like an, if this, then that tool. So if it goes up on YouTube, then it goes up on Instagram and it goes up on LinkedIn. And I was just like between editing and then trying to build like backend systems, I was probably the equivalent of like a five person team when I started this. Cause I, I go so deep on the actual tech. So I don't actually recommend this as a scalable strategy, but I do believe that if you have volume and you maintain volume with a little bit of marketing know-how across platforms for a period of time, you will start to gain a community and an audience. And then once you have that community and audience, you really do have like a higher conversion rate. Cause when somebody discovers you on one platform and they go, You've seen this before. Somebody has a million followers on YouTube and like 20 followers on, t on Twitter. Yeah. Or like a, a actually better example. Somebody has a million followers on Instagram and, and 20 followers on Twitter. Like you're like, mm, what, like, who are they really? Like, obviously they're not that impressive. Maybe they've really dominated on one platform, but I don't know if they're really for me or there's a hesitation to convert into like a fan. Whereas if you have that social proof, which is incredibly hard to build, but once you have that social proof, conversion across all your channels increases. It is about showing up everywhere as much as possible. And I would even say that it's better to not be on a platform than to show up half-ass. I'm not a big fan of showing up half-ass. I'll give you another example who's a complete 180 of me, like Seth Godin. Seth Godin doesn't do social, but he doesn't pretend to do social. Like he doesn't try to do Twitter. I think he auto-tweets his blogs, but he's like, he does Instagram and he does his blog, Seth's.blog, and that's it. And he doesn't do social which is fine because he's not trying to do something that he doesn't want to do. But a lot of people are trying to do things they don't want to do and they tweet like once a week and it looks really bad. We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. I want to talk to all you employers out there and let's talk about company culture. At Yap Media, we have a super unique company culture. We are all obsessed with excellence and we even call ourselves this really cute name, Scrappy Hustlers. We're all Scrappy Hustlers at Yap Media. And my team is growing fast and hiring is a pain in the butt, especially if you're looking for A players that are going to roll up their sleeves. But luckily, when it comes to hiring, I no longer feel overwhelmed by the search for the perfect candidate because I use Indeed, the ultimate hiring platform. Indeed's matching engine always presents me with a pool of high quality candidates that match my job description to a T. If you're tired of drowning in your hiring pool, Indeed is here to rescue you. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging your candidates, making the entire hiring process a breeze. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. 
I've hired some of my best employees at Indeed, some of my best scrappy hustlers. With over 140 million qualifications and preferences analyzed every day, Indeed is constantly learning from your hiring preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets at actually hiring your perfect match. Join the ranks of more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that have already chosen Indeed to hire great talent. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash profiting. Just go to Indeed.com slash profiting right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash profiting. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, I've got a fun fact for you. Did you know that by 2030, over 85% of the jobs that will exist haven't even been invented yet? And that's why we need to acquire new skills and stay relevant and adaptable. By embracing lifelong learning, we can future-proof our careers and our businesses. That's why you've got to check out Economist Education. Economist Education provides online executive education courses tailor-made for professionals just like us, crafted by The Economist's own editors and special experts. Economist Education courses are designed to sharpen your professional skills in key areas like data storytelling, critical thinking, sustainability, and so much more. I highly recommend checking out the Economist Education course, Business Writing and Storytelling. It's packed with valuable practical advice on how to inform and persuade through writing reports, social media, presentations, and beyond. The best part, these courses are online, flexible, and self-paced, lasting anywhere from two to six weeks. You're guided by expert tutors. You'll dive into a mix of videos, podcasts, texts, quizzes, and weekly assignments. Plus, you'll get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning journey. Economist Education provides access to online forums where you can network with peers around the globe. In a world where knowledge is power, Economist Education empowers you to lead the way. Economist Education is an incredible way to stay ahead in business. And I've got a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course only available by going to my special URL, education.economist.com profiting, and then enter the promo code profiting at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash profiting and use code profiting. Again, this ends on March 31st. If you want 15% off, you've got to go to education.economist.com slash profiting and use promo code profiting at registration. Young and profiters, I actually have a nasty habit of ordering way too many groceries. I'm embarrassed to say it, but I've wasted so much food in the past and I felt really guilty about it, but now my conscience is clear with HelloFresh. Each week, I get ingredients shipped to me with step-by-step recipes. I get fresh, pre-measured ingredients that get me whipping up delicious dinners in no time. And then I reduce waste because you get exactly what you need and nothing else. I love trying new foods and HelloFresh has over 45 recipes and more than 100 seasonal add-ons to choose from every single week. It's so much fun to pick out my meals. It's easier than ever to find something that everybody in your family will enjoy. I personally like to stick with the basics when it comes to HelloFresh. I get their meat and veggies plan. I love the options they have for that. And trust me, it's cheaper than takeout and with pre-proportioned ingredients, you'll never waste money on excess food. And now Green Chef is owned by HelloFresh which gives me an even wider variety of meals to choose from. There's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands and you can enjoy both brands at a discount with me now. Skip the grocery store and save time with easy, tasty recipes delivered to your door. Go to hellofresh.com slash profiting free and use code profiting free for free breakfast for life. 
That's one breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash profiting free with code profiting free. Yeah. So talking about your content strategy really quick, I was on your YouTube channel. I was so impressed. And I still see that you do like chop up 20 different videos. So does that still work? Every question, I guess, is its own little video on YouTube. Does it still work? Because if so, I'm going to have my team do it right away (laughs) for me. Well, it works to an extent. Like, is it worth the time? I mean, I have a process built in, so it's still it's it's not that much of a lift. Each video gets a few subscribers. So say that like because you can track like how many subscribers come from every single video you post on YouTube. So say your main podcast gets you, I don't know, just make up a number, 100 subscribers. And each small video gets you 10 subscribers. So fine. If I put out 20 different videos, great. I've made 300 subscribers off of that content. So yeah, compounded over 300 plus episodes and four years, yes, it does make a difference. On one individual, it will probably not. And I would even say what I'm thinking about doing right now is actually putting more editing value into like the more valuable clips and maybe remove some of like the fluff. I look for clues. Like I have people that I watch on every single social platform and I just emulate what they do. I don't need to reinvent the wheel. So I look at the biggest podcasters and I see how they do it. And now I see what people are doing. No one's really ever adopted my strategy, to be quite honest. But what I see like the large, but then again, like if you do everything exactly the way someone else has done it, then you'll probably have the same results and maybe take you a little longer. But the podcasters that I see now, they take like five or six clips from an episode they really, really like. And then they're going to do like custom thumbnails and they'll really put a lot of effort into like the description and the tags. So I actually think I'm going to move that way and just like gauge like is... Is that a better way to go? That's what I do for YouTube, yeah. So something that I just want to call out, Scott, is that I think one of the reasons why you're so successful and you're part of this like 250 podcaster club that I was just talking about is because you did get your hands dirty and you did figure out how to audio edit and video edit and do it yourself and figure out SEO. And and I feel like no matter what niche you are, whether you're a podcaster or not, when you really go deep on whatever you're trying to succeed on, and you do even the lowest level stuff related to that task, you really learn everything and become like a true expert and thought leader. So I want to commend you for getting your hands dirty and and learning how to do all that stuff. Thank you. It's the only way to do it. That's not just with content. That's with everything. Like literally everything that, I mean, I've hired sales teams. I've built out sales teams, built out marketing teams. There isn't a single, oh, but I mean, like other things that you do for the podcast to grow it. I mean, there's there's a whole like building newsletter, building email lists, SEOing, like there's a whole lot of stuff to market a show. But like everything that I've done, it's a marketing activity that I do for my podcast or a business. I've done it myself. So I figured out, like I, I coded my own website. You go to scottdclary.com. I coded that myself on a weekend, which is wild. I shouldn't be doing that, but I, I do this stuff to learn and then I'll try and outsource it. Like SEOing blogs. I'll look for how to SEO how to get backlinks. I look for all the tools and the tech. I figure this stuff out myself and then I'll train somebody or or I'll hire somebody, but at least I'll know if they're telling me they're good, I'll be able to gauge if they're full of it or not. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about monetizing your podcast. So when you first started your podcast, were you using it as like a lead gen tool for your consulting or how were you first monetizing your audio and YouTube channel? So this is wild. I was not using it for anything. I was literally not using it for anything because I was not, when I was building it from scratch, again, like not all of my advice is the smartest and quickest path to revenue. It's just, it's just my journey. So again, hindsight's 2020, if somebody's going to build something and put a lot of time into it, 
and they need to make money off of that thing, there's different things that I would suggest. This is my journey. I had the long vision, long game in play in mind, right? So when I started it, I was still working as CEO of a tech company. I had no need to use it for any monetization. I mean, it would be nice, but I didn't want to sell a course. I have an aversion to selling courses, not because I was working as a CRO. I was like, I hate scammy gurus that sell shitty courses. I can't stand it. It's like grosses me out. And like this whole world of course selling, and this is actually, I want to premise with this. There are very good courses. I mean, what you actually have put together, and this, this is not because you asked me to say this, your course is exceptional with LinkedIn. There's really good content out there, but there's a lot of bullshit out there too. Totally. And I think that you took a long time to create a course. You could have created a course. Five years before I put out anything like that. Your exact same thing as me. I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this right. And I did not have the mental bandwidth between editing all these damn videos and everything day one to put a course together. It's going to be half-assed. It's not going to be worth it, which is funny because candidly, with my experience, it probably would have been okay, but that's besides the point. I couldn't do it. So I was like, I'm building this for the future. I'm going to maintain it. I have a firm belief that if you do anything for 10 years, it's going to be successful. I believe that like wholeheartedly. So I'm like, I just got to keep doing it. I got to keep doing it. I got to trust the process. I got to learn from mistakes. I got to test. I got to, I got to find feedback loops in the things that I do and keep improving. But if I keep doing it, it's going to turn into something. Then you turn on the ads and that's pretty much, and turning on the ads was like people were reaching out to me to get to, to advertise on my show. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's a cool opportunity. And then when you go down that rabbit hole, I never wanted to sell ads myself. So I'm like, then you start to work with brokers. Then I'm like, okay, how do I leverage my time? I'm not going to be reaching out to people saying, hey, come and advertise them. So I'll go on AdvertiseCast and Gumball and all these different types of uh, ad brokers at the, when I was first getting started. And that was it. I never gated content. I never really wanted to do subscriptions, never sold a product, always focused on building a bigger audience. So my call to action was always sign up for my newsletter, subscribe to whatever, go check out my other social. That was my only call to action. Because I knew that long-term, the audience would have more value for me than me putting my name on a crappy product that I wasn't really happy with. And then I was trying to sell it and I was all stressed about it. I'm like, listen, gonna damage my reputation, build an audience, sell later. Totally. It took me, I think, three years before I had sponsors on the podcast. I just focused on growing my audience. And by the way, there's something to say about just pure intentions. Because I have a feeling that you just wanted to help people. You were also probably really curious for interviewing all, you wanted the opportunity to interview really smart people. And so you came out there with really pure intentions of being of service. And I'm sure that attracted an audience to your show. I hope that intention came through. And you're right. I, I had no, I was making good enough money at the time that I didn't really care for another couple, like a few bucks from, from gating content. And funny enough, my passion has actually always been teaching. And I think that's why I wasn't so aggressive about monetizing because I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, my first, my first, first, first job when I was like 14 or young, young, young was teaching tennis. It's like, I love, I love teaching. I love like when you start working with somebody, like they're clearly struggling, clearly like drowning in this portion of their life. And then you like can just take the things that you've known and you experienced and, and the insights that you have and like small little tweaks. And all of a sudden, like they're awake again. They're seeing like life for the first time. They're seeing like the their business for the first time. They're seeing this big problem and then now it's gone away. Like it's such a, it's such a great feeling, candidly. <laughs> it sounds so silly, but it's like, I've never not had a good experience teaching. And I feel like podcasting is a way to teach. I feel like when I step up on stage, it's a way to teach. I mean, I literally like, you want to talk about like just doing all the things myself and trying new things and testing new things. I started a second podcast where I was just teaching business. That's definitely not monetized. I just started it like 
on a whim, like just wanted to try and start something new, try a different format. So I'm like, okay, I want to test a different format. Why not let me teach business, whatever. And then I started a second. So the point is, yes, if you do have passion in what you're doing, it's actually very easy to sustain it for a long enough period of time until money starts to find you. Really, really great advice, Scott. I want to talk about snagging guests. And this is actually a really great transition into sales because you have an incredible lineup of guests. And I heard on an interview that you just leverage your sales skills to get your guests. You take the same approach that you use on sales. And so let's talk about sales, cold outreach, and getting people to actually open emails. What is your best advice? So before you even send an email, you have to find their contact information, which is actually quite easy. I mean, you can use a tool called um, uh, Contact Out. You can use Rocket Mail. You can use like any of these tools to find email addresses. Like very simple. Like it's if you're struggling with that, it's not an issue. You can get anybody's email and like literally anybody's email in the world. Very simply. After that, subject line is the first thing they see. So in my subject line, way back when I would actually just leverage like the five past guests that I had or the three past guests that I had and put that in the subject line of the email, like the most high profile guests. That was really it. Then I would say like podcast invite and that created a little bit of social proof or enough to get somebody interested in to actually open the email. Because I had like Guy Kawasaki, Anthony Scaramucci and Grant Cardone and I think the first like 20 episodes, which is like, by the way, don't recommend because I was scared shitless and I, I was not a good interviewer. I mean, I don't think they really mind, <laughs> minded, but I was like very stressed. So like, it, <laughs> so like it is what it is. So I had them very early on. And it was like, if I, if I, I can't remember who I got first, but say I got Guy Kawasaki first. I think I got Guy first, not first interview, but first like bigger name because he was launching a podcast at the same time, which is actually, I can speak about why that's a strategy now. At the time, I didn't think about it as a strategy, but that's a strategy that you can use. If they're launching a book, you can use that as well. Is there a meaningful event in that guest's life that makes them want to come on your show? Really smart. But Guy was launching a, a podcast. He's like, sure, whatever, I'll come on your show. And, and then I got, Guy Kawasaki. And then I put his name in the email to get Anthony Scaramucci. Then I put Anthony and Guy to get like Grant, whatever the order was, doesn't matter. But that's, that's how you get them to open the email. And then once they open the email, you're reinforcing, of course, the reach that you have and, and what you're going to do for them as a podcast host. You're setting like clear expectations as to what they can expect. But then if you don't have a large reach and the social proof isn't enough, I went above and beyond. So I was saying, I'll edit some social clips for you. I'll send them over to you fully edited. This is what they're going to look like. You can post them on their social. They can just be a view. They don't even need to include me. I can just create great social content for you out of the podcast. I mean, for them, it's what, 30 minutes, 45 minutes of their time, and they're getting free, high quality social content that maybe Grant has a good social team. A lot of people don't have great social teams. You look at a lot of these people, unless you're Grant or, or Gary Vee or a few other like people that really focus on it. Anthony Scaramucci, I love the guy, but his social is not like crazy, right? So yeah. You just leverage what they want, what they have access, what's the problem that they're solving for? Very traditional sales 101. So if they're getting on a podcast, it means they want exposure. Exposure means they're also kind of focused on social. It means you can also tell them the email list you have access to. It means you should also reinforce who else has been on there, social proof, and what you're going to speak about, talk about the things that they're trying to actually announce into the world, podcast, book, whatever, speak about the, the reach of the show, like all the things that are solving for the problem that that person is experiencing in their life. And it doesn't matter who that person is. There's a problem they're solving for. Always, always, always. So that's sales 101 mixed in with getting podcast guests. It's like incredible advice. This is a podcast prince, guys. You have the podcast princess. 
the podcast friends, he knows all about how to snag guests. Like all those tips were really good. I'm going to tell my team today, use the, put, put our best guests in the subject line. It's really good. You can actually do a step more. And actually, because you want the email to stand out, don't even put them in this. You can put them in the subject line, but take, uh, create like a little graphic and put your best guests in like the signature, in your signature in the email. So they can, they can see the people. Because a lot of people may not recognize a name, but if they see the person, they'll be like, oh, I recognize that person. If they're famous, that recognition, it'll like, it'll make that email stand out. And they'll be like, wow, this person, I mean, for you, you've had like up to Matthew McConaughey, like that's a very recognizable face. So you put that person in the signature saying this, this and 15 other people were on my show and you, you, you put little graphics, that's going to get a high response rate. Guys, I really enjoy having my friends on the show. The chemistry is always on point. And honestly, one of my goals for 2023 is to have an in-person studio so that every single conversation has the same type of energy that I have with my friends. I can't wait for that moment. Yeah, bam, here I am putting it out to the universe. Please hear my prayers. Part one of this episode was really fun because Scott and I had a lot to relate on and his come up story was inspiring and had lots of lessons for us to learn from him at the same time. I consider Scott to be one of my peers and even my competitors in the podcasting space. And one of my secrets to success is proactively collaborating with my competitors. Instead of feeling envy or jealousy of somebody who's also rocking it in my industry, I always, and I mean always, try to think of ways that I can meet with them, work with them, and win together with them instead. So for example, Scott is now in my podcast network, the Yap Media Network, and I'm helping him to grow and monetize his podcast. It's a win-win for both of us. Scott and I got along so well that we ended up talking for well over an hour, so we split up this episode into two parts. Stay tuned for part two of my interview with Scott Clary coming out next week, where we touch on everything sales, which is Scott's main expertise. We go over how to establish a buyer persona, pricing strategies, and his favorite ways to use psychology in sales. Selling is one of my all-time favorite topics, and this conversation is loaded with takeaways. It is not going to disappoint. I can't wait for all of you to hear it. Again, part two with Scott Clary is out next week, and I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Young and Profiting Podcast. If you listened, learned, and profited from this episode, share it with your friends and family. I love it when you guys share this podcast by word of mouth. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. That is the number one way to thank us here at Young and Profiting. If you like watching your podcast videos, you can always find us on YouTube. All of our shows are uploaded to YouTube. And you can also find me on Instagram at YapWithHala or LinkedIn by searching my name. It's Hala Taha. And if you want to reach out to me directly via DM, the best way to do it is on Instagram. Again, my handle is at YapWithHala. My LinkedIn gets pretty flooded with DMs. It's hard for me to keep track. But if you reach out to me on Instagram, I will definitely respond. Big shout out to my amazing Rockstar Yap team. Thank you for all your hard work in helping us to put out this show. This is your host, Halataha, aka the Podcast Princess, signing off. <laughs>